0: Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. How are you all doing? Alhamdulillah How was your hifs session today? Tahfil session. Good? How many more verses did you memorize? No, two, more. two more. So how many have you learned? Seven. Seven. Alhamdulillah. Seven verses are better than seven camels. Each time you learn a new verse, remind yourself of this. Huwa khayru mimma yajmaun? This is better than all that people can gather and collect. Each ayah is a treasure. Iqra Read and ascend. So congratulations on learning seven verses. Alhamdulillah. نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم رب اشرح لي صدري ويسل لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي اللهم اهد قلبي وسد لساني وصل سخيمة قلبي. So I gave you some homework last week. What was the homework? Yes? Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. So did you look at all the different chapters, the different books of Sahih Bukhari? How many did you find? A total of how many? 97. So there are 97 books in Sahih Al-Bukhari. All right? And inshallah we'll be studying a few of them, inshallah. Did you explore Through at all? Did you like click on different books and to have an idea of what's inside? Yeah? Did you find the book of Sajdah Tilawa? Yeah? And did you practice reading the first hadith? Yeah? You have to do that inshallah, okay? Because if you're learning hadith, you cannot just rely on listening to it or writing about it. You also have to say it. You know, before or even now, when a person wants to study hadith from a teacher, then they don't just listen to the teacher narrating the hadith or explaining the hadith. The student also has to read the hadith before the teacher. Why read it? Because if they read it with understanding and they read it correctly, then that proves that they have learned it. Right? So part of learning is to also read the hadith. And remember, this is your homework for every hadith class. Alright? Whether I remind you or I don't remind you, whether your group in charge tells you or they don't, this is your homework for every hadith class. And that homework is that you have to read the Arabic. Alright? From hadithana all the way to the end. Okay? So even those names, okay, you have to say them inshallah Okay? Today we will look at the life of Imam Bukhari. Okay? I wanted to do a session on the life of Imam Bukhari because we cannot truly appreciate a book until we learn about the author of the book also. And we learn how much was spent in compiling that book, in putting that book together. Because the book is what? It's like a product. Right? It's the essence of what a person has. So, if we really want to understand this book and appreciate it correctly, we also have to learn about Imam Bukhari. Who he was, where he was from, where he learned from, right? How important was the knowledge of hadith to him and what all he sacrificed in order to learn this knowledge, preserve it, and then pass it on also. So open up your notebooks. I want you to take good notes about the life of Imam Bukhari. Okay? Open up your notebooks and get ready, inshallah. Okay? So, Imam Bukhari and his Sahih, his book, we learned that Imam al zahabi he said, that if a man was to travel for an entire year, in order to listen to al-Jami' al-Sahih, which is the name of this book, he would not be expending wasted energy. If a person were to travel for an entire year to get somewhere, to get to a teacher, in order to listen to this book, would that be a waste of an effort? No. He would not be wasting his energy. Meaning, if you have to travel for an entire year to learn Al Bukhari, this book, then it is worth it. It is worth it. Now, Travel an entire year. This doesn't mean that this year includes the study. No, it just means that you leave your home and you find a teacher that took you 12 months. How long does it take for us to go from one continent to the other? Maybe 24 hours maximum? Maximum? Right? Even if you have to go to Australia, how much would it be from here? Around that much. But imagine, 12 months journey just... To learn Sahih al-Bukhari, it is worth it. We learn Imam al-Nasai, he said, of all these books, meaning of all the hadith compilations, none is better than the book of Muhammad ibn Ismail, meaning it is the best book when it comes to, when it comes to hadith. It's the best book. So, who was this man? Who was Imam al-Bukhari? First of all, let's look at his name. You see the name it's mentioned over here. He is called Imam Al-Muhaddithin Amir Al-Mu'minin fi hadith Abu Abdullah Muhammad bin Ismail bin Ibrahim bin Mughira bin Bardizbah Al-Bukhari Al-Jurfi. Long name. Hmm? Why such a long name? Let me break it down for you. Firstly we see in his name Imam al muhaddithin Amir al-Mu'mineen Fi al-Hadith What does it mean by Imam al muhaddithin The leader of The leader of The Hadith scholars Meaning When you think about All the Hadith scholars The great scholars of Hadith In our history Who is at the top? Who is it? That knew the most, and who is it that con- that contributed the most? It is Imam Al Bukhari. So he is called Imamul Muhadithin, the leader of the Hadith scholars. And not just that, Amirul Muminin fil Hadith, Amirul Mu'minin, the leader of the believers. Who else was called Amirul Mu'minin? Umar radiyallahu anhu right he was called Amirul mumineen the leader of the believers so Imam Bukhari is given the title the leader of the believers when it comes to hadith Imam Bukhari was given many titles what is a title a laqab you may have heard laqab it's an honorific meaning an honorable title that is given to someone like for example somebody is called sir right they're given certain titles in order to show honor to them. So Imam al-Bukhari was given many titles amongst them. These two are the most apt. Then he's called Abu Abdullah. Abu Abdullah. When you hear that someone is called Abu so-and-so or Um so-and-so, this is known as a kunya. Okay? This is known as a kunya. Okay? Like for example can you think of somebody else who's called abu someone? Okay, Abu Bakr. All right, anybody else? Abu Ayyub Al-Ansari. Right? Abu Ayyub which means that his son's name was Ayyub because abu means father of. All right? So usually people were called by their kunya. Because for example, there are 5 people whose name is Abdullah. Okay? And let's say all those five Abdullah's are from the city of Medina. So you say Abdullah said. Well, which Abdullah? So they would say Abdullah, the son of so-and-so. Well, what if their father's name was also the same? Then what? Then you would refer to them by their kunya. Abu so-and-so. You understand? So a kunya would be given in order to distinguish people. Alright? Alright. But remember one thing, now Imam Bukhari is called Abu Abdullah, which translates as the father of Abdullah. But it is said that Imam Bukhari didn't actually have children because he never really married and settled. He spent his entire life, he left his home when he was 16 years old and he never returned. He never returned. From the age of 16, he was a traveler. He never settled anywhere. Every time he would go to Baghdad to visit Imam Ahmad, Imam Ahmad would try to convince him, stay here. You know, you give people different reasons you should come to Canada because it's like this and it's like that, right? You give them reasons to come to your country and settle there. And you wouldn't do that to just anybody. You would do that especially to who? People that you love and respect and you want their company. So Imam Bukhari never really settled anywhere. He was always traveling. Alright? the maximum he stayed in a place was maybe for a year, five years, and even that was not just you know okay, buy a home, there, settle there. No, he would be spending his entire time studying, teaching, learning. So anyway, he's called Abu Abdullah. This is his kunya, even though he didn't have a son named Abdullah. Some say that he did have children. Others said that no, he did not have any children. Regardless, we see that Abu Bakr was called Abu Bakr, even though his son's name was not Bakr. Abu Huraira. I mean, he's called Abu Huraira not because his child's name was Huraira. That's for a different reason, right? Aisha radiAllahu anha was also known as Um Abdullah, even though she did not have any children. Right? So Abu Abdullah, this is also a kunya, which was given to him, you know, as a respect, you could say. Okay? So, Imam al-Muhaddithin, Amir al-Mu'mineen fil-Hadith, Abu Abdullah. What was his actual name? Muhammad. Imam Bukhari's actual name was what? Muhammad. And then we see his lineage. Bin Ismail, the son of Ismail, which means that his father's name was Ismail. And who was Ismail? He was bin Ibrahim. He was the son of Ibrahim. And who was Ibrahim? He was bin Mughira. He was the son of Mughira. Alright? And who was Mughira? He was bin Bardisbe. He was the son of Bardizbe. Now the name Bardisbe, does that sound different to you? It's not an Arabic name. It's a Persian name. Okay? It's a Persian name. Now, this is his lineage. Muhammad bin Ismail bin Ibrahim bin Mughira bin Bardizbe. This is his nasab, his lineage. Now, Bardisbe actually means a farmer. Okay? And Bardizbe, one of the ancestors of Imam Bukhari, was not an Arab. He was actually a Persian. And remember that in Persia, before the Muslim conquests took place, what was the religion of those people? What did they worship? Are you familiar? Fire. They were fire worshippers. Remember the story of Salman al-Farisi. Salman al-Farisi. He was from where? Faris, from Persia. And his family was also what? Fire worshippers. Right? So anyway, bardiz Bey was a fire worshiper, but his son Mughira. Now you see, his son has an Arabic name, Mughira. Which means that something changed over here. What changed over here? Mughira accepted Islam. Okay? Mughira accepted Islam. He became Muslim at the hand of Yaman Al-Ju'fi. Okay? Who was Yaman Al-Ju'fi? Yaman Al-Ju'fi was the governor of Bukhara. This is a place where Murira used to live. Okay? So he was the Muslim governor and at his hand, Mughirah accepted Islam. Okay? Now you might be wondering, Bukhara, Bukhari, there must be some connection. And there is. Because if you look after Bardizbeh, there is Al-Bukhari and Al-Jurfi. And we know Imam Bukhari as just, as just Bukhari. Right? But his actual name is what? Muhammad bin Ismail. Alright? Why was he called Bukhari? Bukhari. When you say Canadian, American, Australian, what does this un mean at the end? Exactly. That this person is from that country. Right? If you call someone Canadian, that means they're from Canada. If you called someone British, that means they're from Britain right? So Bukhari what does it mean? He was from Bukhara alright? So Bukhara is a place what is this place? Bukhara is a city, you can google it and try to find out more about it Bukhara is a city and this is the city where Imam Bukhari was born. So if you look at it Muhammad bin Ismail, this is a very common name. Muhammad is a very common name, Ismail was also a very common name. So there are would be many Muhammad bin Ismail's. So which Muhammad bin Ismail? Bukhari. The one who is from the city of Bukhara. You understand? Like for example, if you say, Sheikh so and so. Which Sheikh? Which one? Well, the one from that country. Okay? So anyway, where is Bukhara? The city of Bukhara is in Khorasan. What is Khurasan? It was a province in the Muslim Caliphate. And it is modern day Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan. I'll show you a map, okay? But, uh, if you're not sure about where exactly this is, please just go Google Uzbekistan so that you have an idea of where in the world is Uzbekistan, okay? Where is it around Iran, Afghanistan, okay? That area. So, Bukhara is a city in Khorasan. What is Khorasan? It was a province, alright? But today it is Uzbekistan. Now Khurasan, just a little bit about it, Khurasan was conquered at the time of Amir Muawiyah. So it was conquered in the time of the companions. Alright? It was conquered in the time of the companions. And you see, after Bukhari, there is Jurfi also. You see that? There is Jurfi also. Hmm? So, what is al-jurfi? Al-jurfi, this is, again, jurfi. This is attribution. Alright? Back in the day, people would attribute individuals to two things. Their blood and also their place. Okay? So when you had to refer to someone, alright, you're talking about a particular individual, you would refer to their blood, so their lineage, and also their place. So you see the place is what? Bukhara. Isn't it? And what is the blood, the lineage? It's with Al-Jurfi. Okay? Now, Jurfi is from jurfa tribe. Okay? Jurfi meaning someone who is from jurfa tribe. Just as Qurayshi. What does Qurayshi mean? What does Qurayshi mean? From the tribe of? Quraysh. So Jurfi means from the tribe of Jurfa. Alright? Now, I told you earlier that Mughira, the son of Bardisbe, alright, accepted Islam at the hands of who? Do you remember the name? Yaman al-Jurfi. Alright? Yaman al-Jurfi was the governor. Okay? Mughira accepted Islam at his hands. Now, at that time, there was a tradition. There was a tradition. That when someone accepted Islam, okay, when someone accepted Islam, then it was as if the tribe, the tribe from whose people they accepted Islam, it's as if the tribe adopted them. You understand? It's as if the tribe adopted them. These days what happens, if a person accepts Islam, when they accept Islam in the masjid or at the conference, everybody's like, yeah, woo, takbir." And then what happens afterwards? What happens? Usually, they're left on their own. Right? I remember Sheikh Muhammad the sharif mentioned that whenever somebody accepted Islam, his father, one of the first things he would do is that he would go and give them halal meat. And he would go and tell them where to find halal meat. Because when a person has accepted Islam, all of a sudden there's so many, you know, so many changes in their life, so many things have to be changed and so many adjustments have to be made. You don't know where to start, where to go. Imagine moving into a new country. Right? Imagine moving into a new city. There's so many things that you have to do. So what was done was that the tribe would as if adopt them. That now you're one of us. This did not mean that they would be considered as, meaning that their bloodline changed. No. Their bloodline did not change. It was just that they were as if adopted by the tribe. Okay? So that they had a community to belong to. They could relate with someone. They had some close relationship with someone. Not just an acquaintance, but a close one. So you understand? So, Bay, the ancestor of Imam Bukhari, he was not a Muslim, but his son Murira accepted Islam. And so Mughira, he was known as al jurfi Alright? Why was he known as al Jurfi? Because he was from the jurfa tribe? No. Because he accepted Islam with them, or at their hands. And so they adopted him. Alright? Later on, however, this tradition was abolished. Okay? So now look at his name again. Can we all read it together? Yeah? good try Imamul Muhaddithin Amirul Mu'minin fil Hadith Abu Abdillah, Muhammad bin Ismail bin Ibrahim bin Mughira bin Bardizbah Al-Bukhari Al-Ju'fi Any question about his name Any question any confusion any thing you find difficult Ask now before we continue because I don't want you to continue to the next chapter with confusion in your mind. Yes, sister. Yaman al-Jurfi. So the governor's name was Yaman and he was al-Jurfi, meaning from the tribe of Jurfa. Any other questions? Somebody else raise their hand. Yes. Just, um, verify again, like, Amir al-Mu'mineen. Amir al-Mu'mineen, leader of the believers. But this is Amirul al fil-hadith. When it comes to hadith, he is the leader of the believers. What does that mean? You see in the Quran we learn that, or in our religion we are taught that whenever there is a dispute, what is it that we should refer to for a solution? What is it that we refer to? The Quran, the Sunnah, and also who? The leaders. So this means that if there is any difficulty, any confusion, any question regarding hadith, what it, whose opinion do we Take Or whose methodology do we refer to? Who is it that makes a final call? Imam Bukhari. Any other question? Yes. Mm-hmm. So why is it mentioned in Imam Bukhari's name? Why is it mentioned in B- Imam Bukhari's name? Okay. Because this is part of his lineage in a way. Because when you look at Murira. And Murira is the son of Berdizbeh. Well, what happened here? All right? Because Bardizbe is not, not Arab. Right? What happened here? And he's not Muslim. So it is said, al-jurfi mawlahum. Alright? Jurfi, their mawla, mawla as in those who adopted. Okay? So this was a way in which people's lineage was also described. Okay? Anything else? Okay. I remember a long time ago I read somewhere Imam Bukhari came from a family of slave traders. He was the son of a slave and, you know, really like terrible things. Alright? And these lies, they have come about from what? From this name Al-Jurfi. Alright? Because in some places it's written as Al-Jurfi yu mawlahum. And like I mentioned to you, this doesn't mean that he was a slave or their Imam Bukhari's ancestors were slaves. It just means that they accepted Islam at the hands of people who were from Jurfah tribe. Alright? Okay. Imam Bukhari was born in 194 after Hijrah. Okay? In the month of Shawwal, in the year 194 after Hijrah. This is about 200 years after the Prophet ﷺ migrated from Mecca to Medina. Alright? Now think about this. Imam Bukhari is not the first person to compile a book on hadith. Alright? You understand what I'm getting to? He's not the first person. There were many people who had compiled books of hadith before him. Alright? So we see that very soon after the Prophet ﷺ passed away, even the hadith was collected. Because people say, oh, how can we accept hadith? You know, so-and-so said that they heard from so-and-so and they heard from so-and-so. This is like Chinese whispers. This is not like Chinese whispers. Inshallah, we'll go into the detail of how hadith was narrated, what measures were taken to learn, to hear, to be able to narrate. But just to give you an idea of how quickly this happened after the life of the Prophet ﷺ all right so 194 hijra imam bukhari was born and he was born on the 13th of shawwal after Jumu'ah sala in the city of bukhara which is in the province of khurasan now you see this map over here you see right above afghanistan all right you see Tirmiz, samarkand all right and right above samarkand you see bukhara Turkmenistan, you see Bukhara over there? Okay. But you see Afghanistan? Look at the words that are above Afghanistan. So you'll see Bukhara over there. Okay? Now, this is where Bukhara is. Alright? And do you see where Medina is? Do you see where Medina is? Right? And do you see where Egypt is? Right? And you see where Syria, Damascus is? Right? Now, Imam Bukhari traveled all the way from Bukhara. Alright? And he basically traveled around this area throughout his life. And inshallah, we'll get to his journeys. Okay? But before that, let's look at his family. Who was his father? Imam Bukhari was Muhammad bin Ismail. His father's name was Ismail. And Ismail bin Ibrahim. And as mentioned over here, he was also someone who had a great interest in hadith. Alright? It is said that he learned hadith from Imam Malik. Imam Malik was where? In the city of the Prophet wasallam in Medina. So Imam Bukhari's father attended the gatherings of Imam Malik. It is said that he sat at the foot of Imam Malik. Meaning directly by him, in front of him, beside him. Listening to hadith from him. And not just Imam Malik, also Abdullah ibn Mubarak. Have you heard of these names? Hmm? So now try to make some connections. Abdullah ibn Mubarak, Imam Bukhari's father, heard hadith from him. And other people also. It is said that Imam Bukhari's father he was actually a merchant. He was a merchant, a businessman. And he would travel a lot for his business. But whenever he would travel to any city, he wouldn't just go there for money. He would also find out who the big scholar was, and he would go and sit in their gathering. And he would listen to hadith from them. He would learn hadith from them. So when he traveled for business, his goal was not just money. It was also knowledge. Now one thing I want to mention to you. Imam Bukhari's father did not become a great All right? Even though Ibn Hibban has mentioned him in one of his books as a reliable narrator. But Imam Bukhari's father did not really make it in the category of hadith scholars or major hadith narrators. Okay? But what we do know is that he was a businessman, he made good money, he had a lot of interest in learning hadith. So whenever he went somewhere, he benefited. But what we learn is that soon after Imam Bukhari passed away, his father died. So Imam Bukhari never really learned hadith from his father. Okay? And his father never really became a hadith scholar. The point I'm making over here is that many times we want men to become great scholars. And we think that they are good only if they're a great scholar. And if they have not memorized the Quran, if they have not taken ijazah, if they have not been to... Al-Azhar or they have not been to Medina University and they've just taken a course here and a course there a weekend seminar there but they do listen to lectures and they do go to the masjid and attend halaqat here and there but they work full time because they have to provide for their family we think oh they're not good enough they're not good enough I want you to understand that every person cannot become a scholar and just because they're not a scholar, or just because they're not a dedicated full-time student of knowledge, it does not mean that they cannot make a major contribution to our ummah. Imam Bukhari's father was a merchant, he made good money. And when he passed away, he left a significant amount for his family. And this is the reason why Imam Bukhari did not grow up in poverty. This is the reason why his mother was able to send him to school as a young child, to learn Arabic and Quran and Hadith. And this is the reason why when Imam Bukhari was 16 years old, she took him for Hajj, traveled all the way from Bukhara to Makkah for Hajj. And it was expensive at that time also. Just as it is expensive today. How could she afford it as a widow? Because she had some money. Where did she get that money from her husband? Worked hard. He made money but he was also interested in learning. And his father died, but look at what his son became. And his son could not become a great scholar had he not had that opportunity. And if he did not have that ease from his family. So do you understand my point? Do you understand my point? Because many times we start looking at you know, especially if you've done the Tareemul Quran course. Like, I've studied the Quran word to word, meaning, tafsir. And if a guy is asking to marry me, he better have learned something also. And he should be, you know, deciding to go to Ummul Quran for like four years or something. And if he's not, I'm sorry. No. Think about it. He, as a man, has a responsibility to look after his family. Isn't it? This is something that Allah will ask him about. rijalu There are those who are able to sacrifice like Imam Bukhari, who don't even settle anywhere, who don't get married, but every man does not have that capacity. So the one who's interested in getting married, having a family, he has to have the means. You understand that? So as long as a person is eager to learn, to support, that even though they're studying something worldly, or they are working full time, their weekends and their evenings, or their summer or their winter break, goes into learning something here, something there, whatever that they can. Alright? You understand my point? Okay. So now we see that Imam Bukhari's father, he was also interested in hadith. And remember, this is something very rare in our history that we find a father and a son. Father and son. Both in the field of hadith, or both in the field of knowledge. You will find a great scholar, but you will not find his father to be a scholar, or his son to be a scholar. This is very rare. Imam Bukhari, major scholar of hadith, and his father was also not a scholar of hadith, but at least someone who was very interested in hadith. He had attended major gatherings of hadith. Okay? And we see that, Imam Bukhari's father, he was extremely careful with regards to his earnings. So we learned that close to his death, he said to one of his friends that, I don't find even one dirham in my money which is from unlawful means. Meaning, I can say confidently about every penny I have that it is from halal earnings. This is how careful he was about his earnings. Can we make that claim? every dollar, every cent I have is 100% halal. I didn't just borrow it from someone and never returned it. This is not through an unlawful transaction. No, 100% halal. Imam Bukhari's father died when Imam Bukhari was very young. And we see that, maybe this is the reason that Imam Bukhari, as a child even, he was so interested in learning hadith. When it comes to Imam Bukhari's mother, we learned that she was a very pious lady, very righteous lady. And she was uh, someone who really believed in the power of du'a, someone who always remained hopeful. There is a very amazing incident from the childhood of Imam Bukhari that Imam Bukhari as a child, he became blind. He lost his eyesight completely. And his mother made du'a. Not once, not twice, but again and again. And she would wake up in the night and cry and pray for her son's vision to be returned. And one night she had a dream that she saw Ibrahim salam in her dream. That he's telling her that because of your prayers, your son's eyesight has been returned to him. And she found out that really her son, Muhammad, could actually see. He could see now. So Imam Bukhari was blind as a child. He became blind as a child. But he regained his vision. And what did he use his vision for? We will see that inshallah. We see that Imam Bukhari's mother played a major role in educating him. How so? We learn that when Imam Bukhari is very young, 6, 7, under 10. She sent him to the local school. And by school I don't mean a place where you learn Alif is for this and Ba is for that and ta is for this and tha is for that. No. A school where he learned not just the memorization of the Quran, not just reading and writing, but where he mastered Arabic language. You're like, yeah, of course, why not? This is not Arabia. This is where? This is Persia, where people speak Persian. They don't speak Arabic. You understand? People did not speak Arabic over here. And Imam Bukhari, before the age of 10, what did he do? He had mastered the Arabic language when he was not even 10 years old. He had memorized the entire Qur'an. And who sent him over there? His mother. We learned that by the time Imam Bukhari turned 14, he had basically benefited from every school, every teacher in his city. By the time that he was 14, he had been to every school, learned from every teacher. He had benefited from everything that his town, his city had to offer. Everything. Just imagine that. But who was behind this? It was his mother. And when he was 16, his mother took him for hajj. She took him for hajj. And when she took him for Hajj, he went to Makkah. Makkah at that time, at the time of Hajj, would be what? An international university. Why? Because at Hajj, people from all over the Muslim world would come. Amongst them were who? Scholars. And a scholar never takes a vacation, by the way. Right? A person who has knowledge never really takes a vacation. Because even at hajj, or even when they're traveling, or whatever they're doing, they also teach. And of course, at hajj, would people have questions? Do you think people would have questions at hajj? Has anybody been for umrah or hajj? When you go there, do you have questions? Even though you took a seminar before going? And you read a whole book, and you have a book in your hands? But still, do you want to have direct access to a scholar so that you can ask them your question? Yes, you do. So Imam Bukhari, he's 16 at this time. He sees all these scholars and he sees so much knowledge. And after Hajj, he begged his mother, please let me stay. Let me stay here. And his mother agreed. So Imam Bukhari now stayed in Makkah. And basically he never returned home. He never really said, okay, I'm going home now. I have learned enough. No. He became a forever student of knowledge. But who was behind this? Who was behind this? It was his mother. Sending him to teachers. Taking him for Hajj. Mothers over here, do we ever think about taking our children for Hajj or Umrah? We think, oh, it's not fard on them. Why waste money? When they'll grow up, they'll figure it out themselves. But you know what? We should definitely take them to Disney World and we should definitely take them to, you know, that place and that place because it's a part of experiencing the world and what about this experience? Where they get to see ilm and ibadah and the house of Allah so that they increase in their faith, their yaqeen. Isn't that important? So who's gonna take these children? Are they gonna beg you? Not necessarily. Who's going to save money and take their children for umrah or for hajj? Who has to do that? Who has to make that sacrifice? It's the parents. So his mother played a major role in educating him.